Starting the recording. So we're live? Yeah. Game face. Hey guys, <laughs> welcome to the Train Like a Ranger podcast, where we talk about all things fitness, nutrition, military prep, sports prep, and more. I'm Dan Burnett, Certified Strength and Conditioning Specialist, here with my co-host, James Tony. Yes. Certified Personal Trainer. And today we have an awesome guest on, uh, Brad Thomas. So. Uh, Brad has an awesome career. He was a Ranger, um, Delta Force operator, and now he is uh, in a band, Silence and Light. Uh, how's it going, Brad? Good, man. Thanks for having me on, guys. Yeah, yeah it's absolute pleasure. Uh, can you talk a little bit about, you know, your band, Silence and Light, and what you're up to now? Uh, let's see. It's been a, a long, we'll say, 18 months of just writing, recording, uh, getting music ready to go. Uh, next album should be out, I want to say end of June. And, uh, you know, that that's one of those things where it, like, started this thing as a means to be able to do something that I loved, but then also have a charitable, com charitable component to it. So the idea is you stream our music or you buy it, or download it or whatever. And we take a, a portion of the proceeds from our royalties and we contribute those to organizations, uh, charitable organizations that help guys that we served with. And so that's that's kind of, you know, the whole mission statement is, first album, we took 100% of our music royalties and we gave them to uh, two different charitable organizations. We've done wow. t-shirt collaborations and things like that and contributed those monies and, and things like that. So we're at the point where, um, you know, we want to get to the point where it pays for itself. <laughs> it's not yeah. there yet, uh, you know, but it, it's getting closer. So that's awesome. Yeah, it's, just, um, it's been a ton of work. Yeah. I, I can imagine. Um, where, where, like if people wanted to find your music, where's the platforms they can go to? It's it's on every uh, streaming platform, CDs. You can just Google it. You're going to find it. But every platform that you would find music, it were there. Google Play, YouTube, uh, iTunes, Apple Music, Spotify, and the uh, cabillions of others. Okay. And it's interesting because when, when uh, we became verified artists maybe two years ago, and which was a pretty cool thing because you can actually see all your demographics for like where your music does best and who's streaming, what countries, how many streams, how many times it got shazammed, um, you know, what's coming from YouTube, what's coming from here. And, you know, my goal going into this was if I could get 5,000 people behind me and kind of behind the mission of the band and download and stream it, I figured that would just be killer, you know? Yeah. And like we did better, we did better than uh, Ride the Lightning by Metallica. Wow. What? Like that's, yeah, like Ride the Lightning sold 80,000 copies. So we're like well into the hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of thousands of streams and downloads and everything else, which is pretty insane, right? That's incredible. Yeah, that's awesome. Uh, better, than, better than Nirvana's first album. Wow. You know? So when you, when you start to kind of put it in that context, like, man, like, okay we did we did pretty pretty awesome yeah yeah you, you know when i found your band you know and we were networking i uh i was getting on and i didn't know what to expect but i started listening to some of the music i was like 
this is really good. You know, I think I told you last time there was one song I literally I kept I kept playing because I was like I was vibing to it. Um so it's it's good music. Uh how long how long have y'all been doing doing the band? When'd you when'd you start your band? So 2018 was when I kind of came up with the concept of I want to do something with music. I, I want to do, do something to give back to the community. And I was like, I started seeing all these people that were like standing up foundations. And, you know, really kind of what you see is like donor fatigue, right? So like everybody that lost a buddy in combat stands up like a foundation or something. I'm not putting any of that down. It just like the number of golf tournaments and the number of like all these things that are out there. And I didn't want to ask people for money. That was really where the concept came from is how can I get money to contribute to charitable organizations that I believe in without asking people for money? Yeah. And I, so like even the first album, and it cost costs over $20,000 just to like put an album together and to do all the stuff. You know, technically you could record one in your basement. And, you know, just download the software and have it. But we wanted to do everything for real, like you would do if, you know, we're a real band. It's a real business. We have, you know, it turned into like, man, I, I need to know all the legal stuff. And like, we had to file, should we be an S Corp? Should we be an LLC? Should we be a .org? You know, like all those kinds of things. It turns into you know, really having to understand a business and having a brand and what does the album artwork look like? And man, it's just, it's a lot of stuff. And that in itself is like, I get, I get joy out of doing that, like creating. So I get joy and, and, you know, excited about making music, but then also just the whole process. And so, so anyway, that started in 2018, you know, with me and uh, my bandmate, Jason Neverman, who was, in second ranger battalion and then went to special forces but he was in uh nirvana and Soundgarden prior to joining the army in 1994 and so i i approached him was like look man i, I want to do something are you willing to be a part of it and you know hell yeah i want to be a part of it let's do something so that that's really where it came from i stood up a social media page and it just kind of grew from there organically you know next thing i know there was a former marsoc officer who hit me up and he's like hey man i don't know what you're doing but i want to be a part of it and you know (laughs) blah 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 and like do you play any instruments yeah i play bass okay cool let's meet up and it just kind of went from there so uh everybody in the band is former service and uh we've actually gotten to the point where we have all four services represented that's awesome (laughs) (laughs) which wasn't intentional because i was like i don't ever want to have a fucking navy guy but our drummer's an Navy guy. <laughs> that's super cool. Yeah, that's yeah, super yeah. cool. Um, you know, I I would say, you know, whenever I was looking for music, one, especially when I was in the service, I wanted to find a band like that. Somebody who, like a band who was like service oriented. So um, that's cool you guys are doing that. And I actually didn't know, like all you guys were coming from uh, from the military. So that's that's cool you put that together. Um, it wasn't it wasn't the intent initially, you know, yeah. because it's it's really hard to find people that are all looking musically to do kind of the same thing. And and also, too, you know, it, it helps us in a lot of ways because I'm very direct about stuff. Like, I don't have this passive aggressive artist, you know, like 
I don't want you to play it that way. I live my way. Like, there's none of that. It's just like, hey, look, this is what it needs. You know, can we get it there? And, you know, kind of go from there. So um, we're very direct about, you know, when we're writing stuff and, you know, all kind of contributing our parts to something. It's, you know, there's not that it doesn't get heated or emotional, but it's a very direct and we kind of draw upon our service, you know, time as a, as a way. And, you know, um, but it's, it's, it's been a super rewarding and a ton of fun. That's super cool. So how, how do you guys go about creating music in the sense of, you know, when you say you write stuff, are you all, are you just in there kind of playing some tunes and trying to figure out how to make it work together? Like how, how does that dynamic work to, to make um, a song? It's, it, it starts with me and I'll come up with kind of a concept and, you know, get three or four parts together. And, and generally I hear everything like, oh man, there's a ton of room in there for the bass to do X, you know, the drum beats kind of like this. And I'm not telling people what to play, but I'm giving them the space to kind of figure out what works and their part. And first album, because we were on such a time crunch, um, it was more remote. Like I would send everybody something. So when we got together, we could, you know, already be, you know, do our homework and kind of have parts figured out and things like that. And so it, it was easier us for to, you know, to collaborate kind of before getting together in person. And so we did it mostly that way. You know, the first album I talk about this all the time and not that I'm not proud of it, but it's one of those things where I got hit up by multi Grammy award-winning producer who's a former uh, Marine and his name's Josh Goodwin, G-U-D-W-I-N, but he's the producer on our first album. He hit me up on social media and he's like, yo, I don't ever offer this, but you know, I'd like to produce your album. And I'm like, who the fuck is this guy, right? I have no idea who he is. I Google him and I'm like, holy Ooh. shit. <laughs> <laughs> like Bieber's producer, Dion, Dua Lipa, Bad Bunny, like dude, you name it, this guy is huge. Yeah. So. Sight unseen, that was like August. We didn't even have, there were only three guys in the band at that point. We didn't even have a complete band. And I was like, yo, we're ready to go, man. What's your schedule look like? And so he said, I can do these three weeks in January. And we basically built the band, wrote the music, and got everything ready to go. And, and really just kind of limped it across the finish line. So the first album is not like the best of our ability. And it's not until this one where you kind of hear like, oh, wow, this is like, this is really good stuff. So. And you said that one comes out, what was it, June? Yeah, we'll start dropping singles. So we have a a publicist involved and uh, same publicist is Ozzy. So we should definitely get some traction from that. But she gets everything next Monday, which is April 3rd. And then she has about a month with it before we can start releasing music. And she needs, she needs about, I think about 75 days before we can release the whole album. So I think just based on the time window that puts us around the end of, end of June, beginning of July, but we'll start dropping singles in about a month. Wow. Okay. So so right, Right now we're like doing all of the video content and, 
lyric videos and album artwork. And now that we've gotten the music complete. Um, so we're, we're getting all that stuff ready to go so that last time we were kind of behind the power curve with everything. It's like the music is done, everything's ready to go. And then we didn't have anything else ready. So um, we've got tons and tons and tons of content. So that's so cool. So the, you said you're going to start dropping singles. I'm actually just curious how this works because I see those singles released, you know, all the time. Um, are the singles kind of like a sample of of the album? Like what's to come as you're as you're wrapping it up? It's it's interesting. I've I've never really understood the process either, other than it's, you know, I think today's music landscape is is way different than what it used to be. Like it doesn't benefit us to release an album versus an EP versus just 12 singles. Like it doesn't really matter. We did this the way we wanted to do it. So we wrote a whole album's worth of material. Actually, it was way more than that. Uh, and then kind of wicker it down to the best tunes. And we had all that really ready to go. So we knew going into the studio, there were 13 songs. And one of them was kind of a, a bonus track. Like, hey, we've we've not even rehearsed this. We literally laid it down in the studio for the first time. And it just didn't have all the pieces and parts done. So we're like, let's just drop that. We can save it for the next album or throw it away or whatever. So um we wanted to make an album and we wanted to make it so that there's not a bunch of fluff tunes on there. Like we've all bought albums where there's like three good songs and the rest of the songs suck and you're kind of stuck with the whole album, but we wanted every song to kind of be standalone, almost like a single. So it released a single. It really has to do with the media and how media responds to that. It's like, Oh, it's, it's almost like the single promotes the album. And okay. so back in the day, it was like the radio would have the single the album wouldn't be out yet. And so people would start hearing things. It's almost like a commercial for the album. Like a movie trailer. <laughs> yeah. Now it really doesn't matter. Okay. And so that's, that's interesting. Um, what got you into the guitar? So you're, you're the, the lead guitarist. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah. How'd um, you get started with that? When was that? I started uh, playing piano when I was like five, five or six. And so always was kind of musical. I think I played piano for like four or five years. And maybe at the end of the time playing piano was when school music programs started in like fourth grade or whatever. So I wanted to play the saxophone because it was kind of a cool instrument. And the first year that they offered school band, I couldn't. I was like late to the game or whatever. Um, I couldn't play the saxophone. I played the clarinet. The next year I played the saxophone. I played in like the pet band and, you know, the school band and all that stuff. And then Back in Black hit and, you know, started getting into like Aerosmith and Rush and stuff like that. And Led Zeppelin. And you can't play that shit on the saxophone. Yeah. <laughs> so so that, that turned into all right, we had this old acoustic guitar in my house. And I think it was my parents that bought for my sister, you know, years prior. And because I had already played music and done so much music stuff, uh, it was really just kind of like my ear was trained, but I just needed to physically understand where and what to do. And so I, I picked it up pretty quickly from the ear perspective. Like I could plink on one string and play along with songs. 
Okay. And then started figuring out, oh, I could play these notes here too, and it becomes a chord. And it just kind of kept going. And, uh, you know, so probably by um, 13, 14, you know, I started playing like Zeppelin and Aerosmith and songs like that. And it just, by the mid 80s, got the thrash metal bug and started playing, you know, thrash metal stuff and, uh, you know, kind of went from there and tried to make the band thing happen, you know, got to the point of like having some success and trying to get stuff together and playing out and doing things like that and did some recording and everything fell apart end of uh the 1980s and and there was really there was this trifecta of of things that happened uh the rangers jumped into panama and i saw some of that on tv uh a buddy of mine had joined the air force and was home december of 89 and he was talking about Hey, there are these uh, recruiters that came around at the end of basic training and they uh, were taking volunteers to go to like a special operations air force unit for guys that jump in behind enemy lines. And, and, and then the band kind of fell apart. So at the beginning of 1990, all these three things were kind of weighing on me and ended up going and talking with an air force recruiter. And that's kind of how I started into the military. But to be honest, like I never wanted to join the army. It wasn't like, Oh man, I'm gonna, you know, uh, super, super into the military thing. Nobody in my family was in the military. I wanted to play music. Oh, that okay. So you had the idea to be in a band before going into the military, and yeah, and was and was doing that. You know, was in a couple of different bands. Yeah, when you were in the military, did you, I, I did you still keep up with the music, or did it kind of get put on the sideline? No, I, I I kept up with it. I didn't for the first, like when I joined, kind of sold all the stuff that I had acquired. And, uh, you know, it was kind of like put it in the rear view mirror. And it wasn't until I got to the Rangers and, you know, had a barracks room. And then I think I was out at a place in uh, in Columbus and a buddy of mine, because he knew I played music, talked to like we're out at a bar, it's one in the morning. And all of a sudden I hear the dude in the band like, Hey, where's Brad, Brad, come to the stage. And I was like, what the hell? And, and he goes, Hey, uh, your buddy said it was your birthday and you wanted to get up here and play a song with us. And I was like, <laughs> what? <laughs> like, all right, cool. And got up and played a tune with the, with the band. And afterwards people were like, Holy shit. Like you're actually the real deal. And Anyway, that's kind of what started again. So within a couple of months, I'd gone out and like bought more equipment. And then I started playing in the barracks and, you know, things like that. And towards the end of the time in the military, like I got into a couple of bands in Fayetteville and ended up in probably one of the biggest bands in Fayetteville. We opened up for all the national acts that came through and stuff like that. And that's kind of where it restarted. Sounds exactly like something a ranger buddy would do at one in the morning at the bars, by the way. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like wasted and non-functional, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Uh that's that's cool that you you learn by ear. Um, could you read the sheet music and and things like that? No? Still can. Yeah, Still I don't can. know. I, I did a little bit of um college and was a classical guitar major and and started to kind of learn that stuff. And I was just like, man, I don't like, what's this going to do for me? You know, it's, it, I'm sure it would have made me a better musician to some degree, but it just, 
it seemed like a waste. Like I can be out playing and and doing that. Why do I need to take classes? Uh, maybe like if I get a degree, I could be a music teacher. You know, yeah. I don't want to do that. I want to be out playing. And so it was it was super unfulfilling. And like I said, all kind of all that stuff happened. And I was like, I know I'll join the army. Yeah. <laughs> and and hardcore, by the way, because you said you went in and said, didn't you tell the recruiter like, yeah, I want to be Delta Force. Yeah. Like, yeah. yeah. So I had I initially went to the Air Force recruiter and he was feeding me a total lies. And I said, I just want to guarantee that I can. I don't know how this works. I just want to guarantee that at the end of basic training, I don't go sent, you know, I don't get sent to Alaska to go flip burgers. Like, I don't know how this works, but I want some sort of guarantee that I at least get the right to try. Yeah. If I don't make it, I get it. But, and so he goes, I'll get it. I'll get a contract for you. Just go ahead and sign. And, and then, you know, we'll get you a contract and make sure that everything's good. And so I did that and I spent like three weeks going back and I was like, Hey, where the fuck's the contract? What's going on? And one day the army guy is like, Hey man, what are you doing here? Like, I see you up here every week. What's going on? And I said, the guy won't give me a guarantee for, for what I want to do. And he goes, well, what do you want to do? I go, I don't know, like Delta force. And he goes, well, you can't do that. You got to do something first, like special forces. And I go, okay, I'll do that. He goes, well, you can't do that either. <laughs> to do something before that, like a ranger. Yeah. So I go, all right, I'll do that, and that's that's literally where it started. Yeah, that's cool. So, so when you were doing it at, at your time, it was was it still like the option forty as we call it today? Yeah, I didn't know that it was called option forty, um, and I don't have any of that paperwork or anything. But I had a contract, a ranger contract. A ranger so. Contract. Um, in, in the middle of my basic training was when desert storm kicked off and it's actually, it was actually during AIT and, uh, or right in, kind of right in between basic and AIT and, uh, anybody that had come in unassigned all got changed to 11 Mike, which was mechanized. Wow. And the only people that didn't get changed over were people that had a contract, like they had an airborne contract. Or they had a ranger contract. Everybody else got changed. If you were unassigned, eleven X or eight, you know, uh, they didn't have an SF, didn't have a program at the time. But if you were any sort of unassigned, they changed you to eleven Mike or eleven Hotel, which was a tow missile gunner in a Humvee. Oh, like wow. how'd you like to go do that? <laughs> not <laughs> at all. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, not at all. Oh, man. We got guys that are afraid they're going to get mortarmen. I couldn't imagine going in and having you know. Oh, missile operator from a Humvee as an option. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's really cool. You get to ride around in a Humvee and then shoot a missile off of it. Yeah. Like, no thanks. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I, uh, I play a little guitar. I taught myself through tablature. It took me forever to, I can kind of listen and pick up a little bit of notes, but that's like, that takes a lot of uh, musical talent to be able to listen and pick up notes like that. Um, yeah. I'm not, I, I never got super good at the electric guitar. I tried picking at it a little bit, but one of my bucket list goals is to play in a, in a, like a, not, not a big time band, but I want to just like go do small venues, you know, like those, you know, just get a group of buddies together and play at small venues. That's one of my bucket list goals. Uh, so yeah, no, it's interesting to, 
there are, there are things available now, you know, like uh, there wasn't YouTube when I was figuring it out. And yeah. I was at the point where it was even like, uh, I remember learning Seek and Destroy by Metallica and probably like either late 83 or early 84 time frame and having the album, like I didn't even have a cassette wasn't even really as big as it became. Yeah. Having to like drop the needle on the album and then, okay, here's this, you know, going back. And <laughs> now it's like these kids jump on YouTube and they're literally like, <laughs> like, like never in a million years, you know, there were, nobody was like that back then. And everything was just so much more of a challenge. So at least nowadays you could jump on and be like, how do I play this? There's like 40 free instructional videos that show you exactly how to play a song. And uh, there's there's something interesting that happens with that, though. And that is you don't really develop your own style. You know, you like in teaching yourself, you create all these little shortcuts that work for you. And some of them are bad habits. Um, some of them are, are good things. But you end up with like kind of a style of your own. And that's something that, you know, I see these kids and people will send me videos all the time. Like, look at this kid's nine years old. And he's just, you know, playing eruption or whatever. And it's like, okay. <laughs> the flip side of that is Lane Staley from Alice in Chains, who Jerry Cantrell gave him a guitar and he had the guitar for like three days and he wrote the song, Angry Chair. Oh, wow. Right, and just a simple, you know, You know, and you're like, you don't have to be great to write a badass song. So, yeah. you know, that's one of the things that I see is like all these virtuoso young players. But, you know, write a song, man. Right. Figure out how to create on it. Not just not just replicate. Right. You know. Yeah. Um, and it, it's funny how some of those like the simplest tunes are the most catchy. Yeah. You know, it's that one song by Green Day. It was just like done it, done it. You know what I'm talking about? Uh, yeah, it's a yeah, it's something like that. But it just does that. It follows a pattern, right? It's it's really simple. I can't think of the name off the top of my head, but I picked up that song. I went and played that song. I picked it up in like a couple minutes. I was like, they made a whole song out of just that that simple tune, but um. Yeah, I uh, I pick at it a little bit. I still pick at it a little bit. I need to get back into the guitar. Um, but uh, uh, yeah, I even I wrote some of my own stuff too. But uh, no, I have zero uh, musical talent. So no, come on, dude. dude nah, come I'm on. zero. <laughs> it's not just my brain doesn't work like that. I'm tone yeah. deaf. I'm just yeah, never. I didn't get into it when I was younger <laughs> either too. So I just it's yeah. Do you appreciate it as a listener or are you like a yeah I, I do i do listen to music it doesn't like some people care way more about it and like kind of defines their life and moments in their life and things like that i don't i'm not that far into music but i do like enjoy listening to music um but in terms of like anything past that at all it's not, lost on me completely i just not something that i have some the way i'm wired yeah it's it that's always one of those like intangibles where you know, I I was thinking when I had kids, I was like, oh, at least one of them is going to pick up on it, you know, and influenced them very early, like took them to see live music and, 
always had some sort of music going either in the house or the car, you know, and my youngest son, I got him this little uh, toy drum kit and he had a little toy guitar and he would like drag that stuff all over the house and play along if I was playing stuff. And not that he was actually playing along to something, but just letting him go through the motions. And it, at some point it just didn't click. He ended up in the sports and, th and that's fine. But uh, he loves music, like very identifies with, you know, a song or moments and things like that. But he just doesn't have the, you know, the musical know-how or, or, you know, desire to do that. But it's always kind of interesting to me, like who picks up on stuff, who doesn't, and you either have it or you don't. I don't think it's something that can be forced. You know, like I hated piano lessons and, you know, it cut into my time, like wanting to go play backyard football. So I hated it. You know, I want to be out doing that. And here I am at this stupid piano lesson and have to go practice. And I remember like, yeah, okay, mom, I'll practice. <laughs> you know, blowing that off and then being down in the woods, screwing around and stuff like that. So, you know, again, it's like something just clicked at, at you know, 12 years, 13 years of age. And I was like, I want to do this for real. Um, so, so we were talking about you guys uh, didn't get assigned to America's Ranger Battalion. <laughs> it's kind of sad. So interesting to me, since you're at 175, like I've been there. I've been to Savannah a bunch of times and things like that. When I joined, I, that's where I wanted to go. I wanted to go to 1st Ranger Battalion. And it seems like every kid that comes in with an option 40, if they're from the West Coast, maybe they want to go to 275. But it seems like everybody wants to go to 175. Like, it's the best place, and, you know, it's so much better, and blah, 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 blah. And so it's it's interesting to me. Um, I ended up picking 375 because the way they were assigning battalion assignments at, at the time, I was worried that I was going to get stuck at 275, and I didn't want to be all the way across the country. So yeah, I figured, let me just pick 375. I know I'm guaranteed. I kind of know the area. Like, I've been out on the town, and, you know, it's not that bad. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like when we went through, everyone, like, we were allowed to make a list in descending order. Now, it, depending on your MOS, you had less say. But um, I feel like for the most part, when we did it, it was, it was like, not 375. That was the list you made. It was just not 375. <laughs> like, one or two was fine. Like, it's just one, two, three in that order. Yeah. Especially with, with RAS being there and you're there for pre-RAS, you're already there for like 10, 11, 12 weeks. And they, by that time too, I feel like they had like the old barracks because they had just been so cemented there for so long that everyone just wanted a change. Um, yeah. You got yeah. airborne and then RASP and you're just like, okay, get me, get me out of Columbus, get me out of here, get me out of Benning. Um, so yeah, I was fine with one or two. I didn't mind going to the West Coast. Um, I just not three, not three. I, we kind of said, and I'm curious to see your thoughts on this, but we said that there's pros and cons to every battalion. Mm -hmm. So first, pretty cool because you got Savannah. Uh, might get in trouble sometimes because you you do a lot of drinking on River Street. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know? uh, there's the beach out there, which is awesome. But we had to resource for all our training. So anytime we had to do, you know, training events or go to the ranges or stuff we were commuting for that um you know up upwards of what was it an hour jay yeah hour getting out to the range. training grounds by um by where 
third ID does all their stuff. I mean, we used to have to drive. We would get like a drive all our gear out there and stuff. I remember driving by that Love's gas station. That was like the last stop before we actually hit the training grounds. We're getting all yeah. our um, bad habits uh, there. Um, yeah, I was a bus driver for a while too, so I got to do, <laughs> I got to do all the commuting. <laughs> that was one of the coolest schools that I ever went to, man. I had, for sure. I have never laughed so hard in my life. We used to. Um, I went as a private, and my team leader was like one of the instructors. So it was just like him and then like thirty privates riding around in the bus. Yeah. So. We started driving around. We went to like Martin Army Hospital and we would pull the bus up at the bus stop and like all the broke dicks would get up and like start hobbling to the bus and then we close the door and drive away. <laughs> and then one time I went to Sand Hill and picked up a bunch of basic trainings and dropped them off at the mall. they have no idea they're like getting on the bus and it's like a bunch of black berets on the bus and they're like holy shit what's going on we're like hey we're taking you guys to the mall and literally drop them off at the mall who how'd you get to the mall uh some rangers took us (laughs) (laughs) sure yeah yeah. that sounds like uh that sounds like something rangers would do oh man yeah, that was a that was a cool uh that was almost like a like a little vacation going to that school because it was just us jamming on the bus, goofing around, and then taking turns driving. I really enjoyed that. Um sometimes it wasn't awesome being the bus driver when you had like a long, long day and then everybody else is zonking out and then you're the guy like coked up on uh Red Bulls or whatever you gotta do. You know, yeah, it's but interesting. We right when I got to a B company, um they had, I want to say like a month prior, they had a bus accident and the the bus driver kid who was a private, I think fell asleep at the wheel for exactly that reason, but he died, you know, in an accident. And wow. so I went to bus driver school, but we never, they like contracted Fort Benning bus drivers because they didn't want exactly that thing to happen. So it was kind of weird because like, you got to be bus driver qualified and all that stuff but nobody we never used it like i never once saw any of us driving the bus other than bus driver school i almost think that we had dedicated we we, sometimes we had um soldiers doing it but it would be our rangers doing it but they were guys that weren't going to train they were on a profile or something because i remember there's a couple times where we come out i mean we're doing a training event for you know two days and i hadn't slept in 56 hours so i could not imagine one of us driving that bus home um (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I, I just remember this one time we had a range where um, there was like this giant hill and there was this narrow path. They wanted me to take the bus around and there was no way to get out of this place. Like there was a stop on this side, uh, like a drop off. I think it was too narrow to go that way. So I had to back the bus back out the way that I came. And I came up on this hill, almost took the whole bus over. Gave me a heart attack. I thought I was going to flip the whole bus. I, I was thinking, what's going to happen if I flip this bus You don't bus want to over? be the ranger bus driver <laughs> no, that flips the bus, the bus Oh, that was so scary. I, I ended up making it out, but the whole bus came up, and it was, like, tilted. Probably, it felt like more than 45 degrees. Like, it felt like we were about to go. But uh, luckily, it didn't happen. Was, they were like, here's your uh, statement of charges. Uh, <laughs> we're just going to take it. It's cool, though. We're just going to take it out of your pay uh, <laughs> for the next 72 months. <laughs> and uh you know you're good 
you're just not gonna make any money anymore you're, you're working for free. <laughs> yeah. yeah no that was terrifying um man so uh, i guess we'll we'll talk a little bit about your career you know our first podcast we talked about all sorts of stuff um but just to kind of highlight you know for guys who uh maybe be stumbling on this podcast first um so you 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 enlisted in 1990, I think you said. Yeah, um, May of 90. And then it was a delayed enlistment program. Like at the time, the military wasn't, you know, it wasn't like the floodgates are open and let everybody in. They were very selective. If you had any sort of alcohol-related offense, if you had even said that you used drugs, any sort of narcotic or even marijuana, like you're not getting in. Um you know, they were very selective. So it, it was like signed in May and I couldn't get in until uh, November. And uh, anyway, so went went to uh, one station unit training at Benning and did, uh, you know, was 11 Bravo, went to airborne school, um, went just like missed getting picked up on Friday because we got like our last jump late, ended up like three weeks in rip holdover which was a blast. And, and then, uh, rip finished in, I think end of March, beginning of April of 91. And, and I was, you know, we were talking about the assignments and things like that, but my last name started with a T and what we were told was you get to pick, they go down the list and you get to pick where you want to go. But once that battalion is full, like then they're going to start assigning you wherever. And everybody wanted 175. And I was thinking, you know, if my last name started with a B, I probably would have gotten to pick wherever, you know, I wanted. But I, I figured once, or 175 is going to fill up and then they're going to start dumping dudes into 275. So if I pick 375, I'm guaranteed to go there. And that was the only reason I picked it. And uh, it's interesting to me that it's like one choice you know one decision can have this like you know crazy effect where it's like then i end up in b company then i end up going to mogadishu then i end you know it's like all these things that were super positive and and were you know positive at the time um but it, it's cool how that kind of stuff happens you know it's like one decision changes everything and anyway so ended up there um did the Mogadishu thing a couple of years later. And then because my platoon was probably the hardest hit, I was supposed to be at RRD selection in October of 93, but was in Mogadishu and obviously uh, couldn't go to selection. I don't think they ran a selection. So my, my chain of command knew that I was trying to get out of the line platoon and go to the recon detachment. Um, Anyway, when we got back from Mogadishu, I was like, I would feel like a shitbird if I left now. You know, there was like really me and one other, I think one other NCO were were it for the platoon. And it's like, I'll, I'll stay, you know, 16, 18 months, whenever they run the next selection in like 95, I'll go to that. And so that's what I did and was there for three years. And then in the fall of 98, went to uh, Delta Selection. And and made it. Um, You're so relaxed. You call it the Mogadishu thing. Like, it's just the Mogadishu <laughs> thing. 
Yeah. yeah you know, it's, it was like crazy. It, you know, it's one of the things that people will ask questions about it. I have no issues talking about it. There's so much to unpack in that. I can imagine. And it's not even the battle. Like, forget the battle. Nobody understands what it was like in the military back then. You know, so it's one thing for me to to say, you know, here, here's a war story or here's, here's something that I did or here's something that I witnessed. But like, we didn't have hearing protection. We didn't have radios. We didn't have night vision. You know what I mean? Like, there's all of these things that are just so completely different. When we got back from Mogadishu, our company was the only company in the Ranger Regiment that experienced this. And we were all like, we need to start doing these types of things in training. And all of the other battalions were like, okay, yeah. Uh, anyway, you need to make sure your boots are blackened and spit shine properly. And uniforms got to be started. It's like we were the, you know, the total outcast. So it's not like when we came back, everything changed and we started becoming more mission focused. It went right back to peacetime army. Here's what really matters, you know, is, is your haircut being straight and everything else. So, you know, it's like I said, it's very hard to just talk about something without understanding, you know, what things were like back then. Uh, yeah. The context is huge in that. I mean, that's crazy because a lot of people, especially nowadays for, for us, I mean, we've been the war on terror started in Oh one. So like, for most of these guys, especially that watch some of our content, they've been only have been alive since the army hasn't been into the peacetime army. So a lot of people forget, like you're talking about, like the the old BDUs, the black polished boots. Um, yeah, all that was just like the most important, like the starching, all that stuff. It's crazy to think about now when we have boots that are like whatever brown suede. You don't even have to polish them or any of that stuff um, yeah. to think about like how that was such a focus um, back in the, you know, 80s and then even in the the mid to late 90s it sort of was like that still before um a one yeah i'm glad that i got to experience both sides of that and it, it's interesting because i was i was talking with a buddy the other day who's currently in a special mission unit and i said you know what was cool about back then was you kind of had to be prepared to do everything it wasn't Hey, same battlefield, same template, same assets, same, you know, equipment, same everything, just kind of over and over and over again. You really had to be creative and, you know, hey, what do we need to do to be prepared to go do X, you know, whatever it might be. And, uh, you know, I got to experience three years in the unit prior to there being any war, you know, and uh, just a totally different thing back then. Um, you know, but it was also cool to experience war stuff. I just, you know, I'm glad that I got to do both and got to see both sides. I feel like I was more well-rounded. And that was something I was curious about, you know, at that time, you know, peacetime army, I was going to ask you, and I think you kind of answered it, but, you know, cause y'all went through such a, such a hard traumatic thing. When you came back, was it just business as usual? Yeah, I mean, you're talking, there was no nothing set up for people that had psych issues. There was, I mean, there was nothing, you know. Uh, we had the, the Delta Force chaplain pulled us aside before we went home, and he gave us, like, a two-minute speech. And that was the only counseling anybody got. <laughs> there was nothing. I remember the day we got back, it's like there were MP cars 
bringing dudes back, like people that weren't doing well, that were out boozing, you know, just just things like that. And I think the MPs like actually cut people some slack, which was pretty cool. But, you know, there there was nothing. And, you know, you figure, too, it's like a lot of the leadership changed over. So, you know, all of a sudden, different platoon sergeant, platoon sergeant that wasn't there, uh, a couple of squad leaders, you know, I was a team leader, uh, a couple of the squad leaders that hadn't been there and getting imports and people that, you know, whatever. And it just all of a sudden, you know, then the next thing that happened was um, by, I think, the following August. So we got back late October, we'll say November. We went on leave. Uh, they gave us like 10 days off and then we got block leave later and they weren't supposed to charge us for the 10 days leave, but they did. So I was my entire career in the army. I was like negative 10 days <laughs> because oh, <no. laughs> like, Hey, we're going to hook you guys up and give you a 10 day pass. And it fucked us. But anyway, um, by next August, we were like prepping to jump into Haiti and invade Haiti. And that was kind of a cool thing where you're like, oh, man, like, what are we going to do here? And that would have been nuts. Yeah. Yeah, <clears throat> yeah that's so it's so um, so interesting to hear, hear that. Yeah, you the, know, I, the, go ahead. Sorry, I, I would say, yeah, it kind of feels like. Um, like, that's the structure, I think, I think it got better over time about, you know, letting dudes address some things, but. You know, yeah, it got better in like back. the last four years. Like it, it was yeah. still a long time removed from even you talking about not having counseling in place. Like even some of the steps they took to to put something in place wasn't really. I think it's kind of coming together now in the last you know handful of years more so. I mean that's three decades afterwards that it was. It's crazy to think how long it took them to get something in place for for mental health and to really understand what people were going through. Yeah. It's Good to see that push. Um, yeah, because it did feel like uh, in, in a lot of time, you know, especially in my case, I, I had it pretty easy, um, you know, as far as like my deployments were were pretty all right. But yeah, it did feel like you come back and it's just like business as usual. I'm like, all right, do your job, you know, get your leave. All right, we're back to work, you know, that type of thing. So, um, yeah, no, I was curious about that. Thanks for answer. Uh, uh, you know, in, in about your time in, in Delta, so you, you went to Delta, and I know I know you're limited on what you can talk about. Tell but... us everything. No. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, you were there for the start of, of 01 and all that stuff. I think that's crazy, too. I'm sure that was that was a, a wild ride. I mean, you know, no telling. Yeah, again, it, it really, you know, without getting into any specifics, um, you know, it was really about, like, what are we prepared to do and, you know, what kind of missions do we think we're going to be fulfilling? Um, the biggest change that I saw really didn't have to do with anything tactical, you know, or tactic related. It was really the equipment. Yeah. And, you know, one of the things in the building that's so cool is they have different displays from every era and every conflict. And you can see at the start, you know, during the invasions and everything else, it's like, this is the shit that we were wearing and how, you know, ill-fitting some of it was for the roles that we would be fulfilling and things like that. And so I feel like one of the coolest things that happened was the evolution of, you know, going from 
Fort Bragg range uniform gear, what worked, you know, in a shoot house to, you know, all of a sudden something completely different. Even, even, you know, working with rangers and things like that up close and personal seeing, you know, you guys went through a, a quite an evolution also. And, uh, you know, it, I think that's been probably the biggest change, you know, uh, I, I think too, it's interesting to see the military now, it's kind of like, I'll use the SBAB, right? The army stood up these SBABs, the, the uh, you know, kind of meant to be the, you know, supervise and assist and all of that stuff. It's like big army SF, more or less. And, you know, that was something based solely on Afghanistan and Iraq that worked there. But, like, what do they do now? You know what I mean? Like, all right, we need to shit can that unit and we need to put these people here because now we're looking at this on the horizon and something else. And the army, you know, generally speaking, is a very slow moving, bureaucratic, you know, not seeing the forest through the trees, fighting their last battles. You know, that's that's one of the things that it does. You know, like, why did I. In 1991, got issued green jungle boots that had spike protectors in the soles. You know what I mean? Like yeah. from Vietnam, like yeah. <laughs> 30 years prior, you know, still wearing, you know, that era of stuff. And uh, anyway, so I feel like the force in general is better equipped, better trained. Um, you know, they're much more mission focused. And now it's slowly going to start creeping back into the hey, well, you know, we need to have a formation and, you know, people ought to be dressed properly. And I've, I've seen the evolution happen just going down to Benning and visiting with folks. And it's like, you used to see nobody wearing a beret walking around. Yeah. And all of a sudden it's like, ah, everybody's in uniform. Back at it, yeah. <laughs> you know, like things are starting to change. Yeah, that's so interesting to me that you guys, when I remember when I you first told me you guys didn't have radios. I was like, that's so crazy. Because I'm, I'm trying to think. We had too many radios by the time we, we were two... doing it. <laughs> <laughs> we got five radios. No, no. But, you know, like I carry two radios. And, you know, I'm talking to, on the different, you know, sets of things. So that's so crazy to me because there was so much communication. And that communication was was the kind of like the the key of of what we focused on. So it's. It's just interesting to see how, like, hear how that was, because I'm sure there was a lot more reliance on, you know, uh, you know, that verbal communication, you know, person to person, traveling things down the line, probably hand signals, all those things. But I'm I'm just thinking, how would that work? That would feel so crazy, you know. Um, yeah. How do you how do you put out? You're a squad leader. How do you put out information to your men when you've got people? in multiple locations, you know, pulling security down alleyway, this guy is firing this way, doing that. Like, how do you put out information? There's like bullets and RPGs just flying down the street. Yeah. And so verbal communication didn't even work. And, you know, that's one of those things, like I said, it's, it's very hard to get into the stories or, you know, without understanding, like you're in the blind, man. I have no idea. The first time I dismounted, and was out starting to engage people like we weren't even to the target. I thought we were at the target, you know, and then and then like the vehicle just starts heading down the street. And I'm like, uh, and I got to catch up with the vehicle. 
and yeah. make my way down the street by myself. I have no idea what's going on. Zero idea. And uh, that was pretty much the whole day, you know, into into the next day. So, you know, it, it's I think those are the things where it's like, man, just understanding, uh, you know, we had never done any sort of training with uh, body armor on. You know, the first time we got it was literally before we got on the plane to go over and you know, understanding what it did. Like, we didn't know. Does it stop bullets? Does it, you know, what does it do? Um, not not allowed to roll our sleeves up. You know, it's like 119 degrees, like insanely humid. And, you know, we don't want to be like those cowboys over there, undisciplined cowboys. So we're going to show them that we have standards and, you know, make sure everybody's boots are bloused and sleeves are down. Yeah. Shit like that, you know? Yeah. Well, some things don't change. I did some training with uh, steels at a range and uh, they were shirtless throwing the football around. <laughs> and like we got two rolls we got two rolls on the sleeve we were over there being super up tight while the seals are throwing the football i was like let me go play with them <laughs> but yeah no that's uh well i remember actually- i didn't see much so when i went to the 173rd it was the first time i had actually seen anybody train in more of like a modern fighting in another actual army before so we did so much training in regiment and even when i was in 82nd about what we were doing in afghanistan and you know I transitioned and I, I remember learning when they, you, how you attack a, a, um, like a trench in a bunker and stuff and how you had to you know, tie signal flags around stuff like that in case like comms go down. So, you know, where people are, but at least we still had the radios. I could not imagine doing some of that stuff with like <laughs> zero communication, like really relying on the fact that everyone was supposed to know exactly what they were doing, when they were doing it, and how they were doing it, or else you guys were going to be in trouble. Yeah, we, I think about um, doing live fire ranges, moving to contact live fire ranges, right? And I was always a part of the flanking element that came around. And I remember being uh, the team leader, like when we were doing squad size, moving to contact, thing like that. And uh, literally have a chem light bundle. And we're like throwing, <laughs> they're, they're like just shifting fires in front of the chem light bundle. Oh, no. Like, there's no comms, you know. And then when we got to when we got to limited advance or whatever, it'd be like, here's a star cluster, and that would be like lift fire, Stop. you know, signal. But that that was some like shady shit right there. <laughs> yeah. Those feel shady sometimes with radio. Hoping something doesn't bite you. Yeah. Oh wow. No, that's crazy. Okay. Yeah, I really couldn't imagine that. Um well, it's crazy to think how far the arm, the military came in in just those, you know, thirty years too. From from when you were doing, you know, Mogadishu to to now, like the technology jump is uh, absurd. Yeah, yeah, it is. I mean, yeah. I could, I know where people are, you know, all over with, you know, GPS and you know, IR flashes and just all this crazy stuff. With the, it's yeah, it's crazy to think that the difference just that you saw throughout your career, the jump in technology that you guys use. Yeah, that's why I say there's a, a part of me that I'm I'm really happy that I got to see the shift and how things changed and how much you know things evolved. That was probably the coolest the coolest part of it. Um, I have this conversation all the time with 
buddies. Some of them are peers, but usually it's when I'm like with a collection of peers and then also, you know, younger guys that are serving now. And the question is always, was it harder back then or is it harder now? And, and now what I meant by that was more like when you could show up right out of RASP and go to, you know, a deployment and which didn't used to ever be a thing. Um, you know, and I always come back to, I, I think it was way harder back then and harder doesn't mean better. It just means like, we're trying to simulate sucky conditions and we're going to do that by forms of, you know, physical training that was just almost a form of abuse and, and then hazing as a form of, you know, Mentally, is this guy going to quit when things get tough? Um, you know, there was no PT program or like nobody knew. It was just literally run as fast as you can, do as much of this. Um, you know, anyway, I, I feel like you got a different product from that environment than what you get from a very refined PT program. I mean, even down to like diet and what people are eating in the chow hall has changed. Just completely different. And so I'm not suggesting that harder means better. It's just, I think you end up with a different thing. That's a good way of putting it. Um, well, as people say that about RASP and RIP too, how you, you learn a little bit more through RASP now, but it's important because like you said, I mean, we have two radios on us. You have to be able to like utilize all this new technology too. It's not just, yeah. you know, be the strongest, baddest dude getting through rip whereas you have to be strong capable but also you know you got to be able to use these radios you need to be able to communicate effectively and things like that so like there's also like a, a couple different sets of standards that they had in place in throughout Absolutely. the track as well yeah yeah you walk around now like cyborg with cables everywhere <laughs> like, like where do i wrap this one yeah you i know? was learning how to make my own antennas like i don't even, I don't even know how i had to learn how radios work like I, stuff that I just never even would have thought about. <clears throat> yeah, it does. It, you know, would you say it's, you know, necessary that way because there's there's uh, a learning curve with the new technology, I guess more. I noticed training times have increased and stuff like I think the infantry uh, initial training is now like 22 weeks or something. Yeah. Um, I Do you think it's for that reason to kind of deal with that learning curve of all the new technology and the OPs? They, um, like my uh, youngest son just went through uh, OSID down at Benning. And uh, it was interesting to kind of hear the things that they were doing as opposed to, you know, and it was 30 something years later that he's going through that when I went through. And kind of like what Jay was just saying, like they're getting a lot better training. I mean, the number of times that he went and shot was insane. Uh, medical training was great. I don't think, you know, we got the old FM, whatever, uh, here's, here's two sticks and a cravat and make a splint, you know, uh, <laughs> here's, here's a field dressing. And you like actually had one for like the whole group to look at and they opened, you know, there was no, no, uh, no stuff like that. So, you know, he definitely got way better training than what I got. Um, you know, there's a lot more bullshit too um you know that they're getting they're getting subjected to also and um you know 
whether that's good, bad, or indifferent. I'm not I'm not here to say one way or the other, but definitely got better training. Um, a lot less accountability. Like that was one of the things that really kind of started driving me nuts. I, I try and be a dude that's not like back when it was hard, back when this is the way it should be. They had people in his basic that literally just wouldn't go train. And he was the platoon guide. And there was no accountability in the morning. Like they didn't have, you know, you got everybody. Okay, we're getting ready to go on a run. They did PT and ability groups. So he didn't know as the platoon guide whether he had four people on sick call. Uh, they just, the only time accountability came into play was getting on the bus to go to a range or to go train. How many you got? 27. And when you get off the bus coming back, how many you got? 27. That's all they cared about. So there were kids that like literally sat in the barracks. So they didn't feel like going to train. They just sat in the barracks. Oh, how that would work, man. Yeah, I don't know. Exactly. <laughs> I was just like, man, okay, well, yeah, let's see how that works out. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, there's got to be a balance between the two for sure. Um, yeah. Well, especially in basic, I don't, it's not like when you're in, you're in your unit for seven years and you're like, I just don't feel like doing that today. I know how to do it, but like in basic, you don't know how to do this stuff at all. So like all of that training is much more important at that point too, for you to just be like three weeks ago, you weren't in the army and now you're just chilling in your bed while everybody else goes and does things. It's it, it, I, yeah, I don't understand how they, and, and on their phone and then dude sneaks his phone into the bay at night and he's chatting it up with so-and-so um it was cool because they had figured out workarounds for how to get contraband and so like on the weekends they could they couldn't leave sand hill but they could get like um doordash or grubhub or something and then they would call the driver and they'd be like yo pick up uh you know, pick up some Zins or pick up some Copenhagen or whatever, and I'll give you an extra 10 bucks, you know, whatever it was. It was like, man, they're pretty slick about, you know, how to work around the system. I have yeah. a, I have a buddy who's, he's an AIT instructor now. And he was, he's texting about how they would call those DoorDash drivers and ask him. And I was like, you got to kind of respect that hustle a little bit, you know, <laughs> the ingenuity yeah. there is a little impressive. You know what I mean? Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Bottles of booze, yeah. beers, whatever, you know, Red Bulls, all the stuff that they weren't allowed to have. And they were like, had this whole cut out for it on the weekend. Those DoorDash drivers <laughs> are making six figures off those dudes for sure. Yeah. <laughs> like prison. One of, the things like that's, out. <laughs> one of the things, interestingly, that hasn't changed was like, if they were off for the weekend or whatever, and even in RASP, pre-RASP, which he was in, um, even that, it's like, they don't have a car. So the same thing that I did 30 years ago is like, he's doing the exact same thing, you know, cause it's like, well, nobody's got a car. So we got to rely on these cab drivers. They don't let Uber on to post. So they have like these, you know, special Fort Benning cabs. That's what he's got to take everywhere. And they probably charge him an arm and a leg. But yeah. Oh, yeah. To walk around like, the mall and go to a movie. <laughs> yeah, in uniform. <laughs> and they've got like, and they've got a bag that they'll carry with them with civilian clothes in it, but they got the shaved head and you know tan lines on their head. It's like oh, <laughs> something do it. not change. Yeah, yeah. Well, we we about wrapped up our time. I there's so much more that I could talk to you about. I would love to have you back on if you if you find the time. Um, yeah, man. 
Yeah. Can only do a uh, part one, part two. You know? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, that would be awesome. So, um, you know, do uh, do you, do you have anything else, Jay? Oh no, I'm good. Sorry, I didn't know what you were going where you were going with that, but <clears throat> no, yeah, just just uh, super pumped to have you on. This has been an awesome conversation. Um, would love to do it again. Um, so do you have anything else that you want to leave people with? Yeah, I mean. You know, like I said, if if you're if you're down to do a part one, part two, we can get into a bunch of other stuff. Um, yeah. But you know, the reality is just here to chat about whatever, and uh, appreciate you having me on. We but, appreciate it. Yeah, it's super cool to to you know uh, to me. You're like a you're a mountain of a human being. Got awesome career accomplishments, and you know, just you as an individual, very interesting. Just a regular knucklehead, man. Just <laughs> happen to have, you know, there's there's so much more to, I, I get kids hit me up all the time on social media and they're like, you know, how many, how many push-ups should I be doing before I go to like, dude, I don't know. I didn't know any of that <laughs> stuff before I went. Yeah. And, you know, really it has to do more with what's going on up here and, you know, being mentally prepared and all of that than it does with anything else. Um, there are also these intangible things like timing and luck and all of that. I mean, you know, step the wrong way out on the, you know, coal range and, you know, you're out, you know, it's just, there's so many things that are intangible, um, being able to play the game, you know, and if they say you're not allowed to do this and you're doing it anyway, you know, how to not get caught doing this, <laughs> you know, they're, there's a lot of stuff like that. And, you know, it, it's nothing that you can necessarily prepare for. It's like you're either this type of brain person or you're not. And uh, anyway. I, I feel like that as well, because I, I feel like, you know, me as a as a human being, I'm a goober. You know, I'm a, I'm a walking goober. But one thing I will give uh, give myself credit for is, you know, I don't quit things. So, you know, I go things. I do my best, which is sometimes all you can do. Um, you know there's been a lot of <laughs> my best doesn't look like uh, super awesome sometimes but you know but you know i've I've seen guys a lot of guys going to do you know the the ranger thing and i'm like oh that guy's you know he'll he'll do great and there was a lot of guys who i thought were gonna make it who didn't so you know all those times i said uh you know you know maybe i'm not special and all these things like there is something i think that makes um makes us uh successful you know there's something some sort of wiring whether it's acquired or um innate you know there's something that we have that allows us to keep pushing through well there's also you know again a part of the intangible is like it's sometimes it's just not your path and so this thing it's not because you're unsuccessful because you suck it's that this just isn't your calling you're meant to go do something else, you know, and even to have longevity with stuff, you know, to serve as long as I did in the organizations that I served in, you know, it's, it's an everyday thing, man. It's not an easy lifestyle. You're constantly being evaluated. You know, it doesn't, it's not like, well, because I'm here and now because I've got a tab, I don't have to perform ever again. You're still having to perform every day. And, 
doesn't matter if, you know, you go out and have a DUI, like you're out, man. See you later. And, you know, out of the tribe and on to the next thing. And so I don't think that, I think when you're in it, there's this sense that like, oh, that guy's a piece of shit because he did this. And it's like, no, nah, man, it's like his time is up here. He's meant to go do something else and, you know, figure out something or take something to the big army or whatever it might be, you know, but everything is about timing. Yeah, we just, you know, it's actually interesting. You put pull me back in. This is too good. Um, <laughs> yeah, um, I get I could literally talk. I could talk to you for hours. So. I. Yeah, so I I was just talking about this, how, you know, whenever you go to do things like sometimes it is by that timing that you were mentioning, sometimes people fall short, even though they gave their best effort. And sometimes life kind of redirects us. It doesn't mean that, you know, you're a bad person or should have this negative self-image because one thing didn't work out. You know, if you've hit a bump in the road and you get redirected, you know, what are you going to do about it? And I think, you know, judge people by their losses, you know, and how they adapt from it is important because, you know, like, okay, this didn't work out. You know, I say, I do see that with some, I call it closed mindedness where some people see another guy stumble and they go, that's, they hyper-focus on it, you know, for that guy who stumbled, you got to tune that out and, and focus on, okay, that didn't work out for whatever reason, you know, maybe it is some personal accountability to take, but what are you going to do about it? And I think really that's what makes makes a man great is you know, hitting that adversity and then taking it as a learning lesson and then pushing forward. Um, would you say, you know, like you said with the intangibles too, like especially going through the track to selection and into special operation, things like that. I, sometimes it's just lucky because everyone has bad days, but some people have bad days on the wrong days. So like, it's super important. Like some guys, like you said, some people you thought would make it and they just, they had a bad day on the wrong day. And it was the day they needed to show up and not have a bad day. And sometimes you just have a, you have a bad day on the wrong day. <clears throat> yeah. I, I like that you say, you know, it really is about where you go with it from, from here, you know, everyone, you can't serve in that community for that long and not experience some sort of adversity. And it could be anything. It could be family situation. It could be, you know, oh, hey, I made a mistake and made a poor choice and ended up doing something that I shouldn't have done. It could be anything. And, you know, exactly. It's like, well, what am I going to do with this now? We're all going to make mistakes. We're all going to fuck something up pretty badly and all feel like. And, and I and I think there's another side of that, which is like your conscience and how you feel about something. You know, I recently had something come up and I'm just like, <laughs> I got that same nervous feeling again, like I'm going to get called on the carpet and have to go talk to the first sergeant, you know, like <laughs> it's a good thing to have inside you, you know, and you know, you fuck something up and okay, man, I don't ever want to feel this way again. So, but that's also when you learn the most about yourself and, it, and learn about others because <laughs> that happens too, you know? And so it's so refreshing to, hear it coming from you it's kind of like this trickle down effect because you're somebody i look i look up to and i've kind of found the the same life lessons through you know my time of life and you know it's like something i got to remind myself of sometimes and uh i think it's kind of that trickle down effect so the people who you know uh 
listen to me, you know, and they're trying to go do the initial things that, you know, I did or, you know, or even another goal, you know, they, they keep that in the back of their mind. Cause I think where some people get caught is maybe their upbringing taught them that, you know, succeed at all costs or something. And, and then they hit that, that loss for the first time or that bump in the road. And, and to some people that debilitates them and they don't know how to, how to stumble from that. But everybody who I've talked to who's achieved great things, they've always reached some point like that, but they push through it. And I think that's, that's kind of the big lesson that I keep hearing from so many people. Yeah. I had my, uh, my youngest son just hit the same, had the same thing happen. Right. So he was in pre-rasp had taken the PT test, crushed the PT test to class up. So he should be starting the next RASP class. Um, there was some stupid shit happening in the barracks. The cadre conducts the health and welfare, and he gets caught with some contraband that I would argue is hardly contraband. You know, And when he was confronted with the option of lying about it, or maybe hiding it or doing something nefarious. He was 100% honest with the cadre and that got him sent down the road. And I feel like, I don't care, man, whether you made it through, whether you didn't make it through, doesn't matter to me. You did the right thing as a human being. And he squared away his buddy who's still in the class. So, you know, that's one of those things where if you look at the situation and you go, well, he shouldn't have gotten dropped because he was covering for somebody for something that shouldn't even have been an issue anyway, right? So what do you do with that now, you know? Do you try and go back? Is that the place you even want to be, you know? Maybe it's better to go someplace else and end up in SFAS, Go to ranger school, you know, go do the things that you're going to go do wherever you go do it. But, you know, the time, it, timing wasn't right. And there are intangible things that happen. Basically, he was crushing it, you know, had nothing to do with anything. And, you know, you look at that situation and you go, everybody thinks going into something like RASP or Delta Selection or OTC or just staying in the building for, you know, any number of years Oh, it's like my physical performance, you know, switched on. Am I a good shooter? Did I fuck this up on target? Did I do something wrong in the helicopter? You think about those things, but almost every situation I've seen, it's everything other than that. You know, it's the things that don't count. It's not a graded exercise. It's all the, okay, well, we said don't have contraband. You had contraband. Yeah, it's kind of a shame to hear that, you know, because... I live by the by the principle of honesty is the best policy. And yeah. Sometimes I do think that gets overlooked, you know, the the deeper context of what's going on, you know, like um person did the right thing no matter what and stuff like that. Sadly, sometimes that does get overlooked. Um yeah, well, it's you know, it's it can have the effect of creating a toxic culture where it's like the person that was dishonest is still in the ranks. And then the chain of command is out there preaching about how, you know, honor and integrity. And I'd rather have people that are, you know, honest, like you people like, well, you got a liar in the ranks. 
Yeah, I can leave a bad taste yeah. in your mouth too, especially if, you know, like he's, you said, the person he was covering for, he was told the truth and now he got kicked down the road when it, it can make you not even want to try again because you're like, okay, well, if that's the kind of person that got to stay, it doesn't really seem like that's a, you know, fair or honorable place I want to even be at that point. <clears throat> yeah. 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 Well, I mean, the sun, the moon, and the stars don't shine and rise and fall on. <laughs> special operations yeah. <laughs> there, there are a lot of you know a lot of things faulty in everywhere you go and right you know being it's like hey i'm, I'm in the uh the, the nfl combine and i do the right thing but i don't make it into the nfl you know hey oh well man it's still life you still have other things and there's other good stuff that you can do so you know, I understand having served in special operations and I've never saw anything else in the military. Like I didn't see what it was like in the 101st or 25th ID or any. So I have no basis to even give somebody advice. The only thing I know about special operations, kind of generally speaking, is it pays better. You know, you're not getting bounced around from assignment to assignment, you know, so there are some benefits to that. And so I would push him to try and get back in at some point at some, you know, with some unit, whatever it is, just because I feel like you're going to end up, you know, being able to do uh, maybe things that you want to do and then also get paid a little bit better and, you know, et cetera, et cetera, reenlistment bonuses or, you know, who knows. I've actually seen that happen to, good buddy of mine so in in ranger school he actually got caught with contraband uh, a lot of people did because there was a uh, some care packages that were stuffed in the in the dryers <laughs> i may have had some reese's here and there but <laughs> but uh anyways he there was a big health and welfare and a lot of people got got the boot and our class was under a lot of a lot of pressure that next time through because we already had two major minuses they gave it across the board to all the recycles there was so much contraband that got found because some guy was eating a pop tart uh outside during the recycle phase but anyways <laughs> what happened was this guy got caught and he got booted from ranger school and and here ago he got booted out of the regiment um so there's a bunch of things that he could have done with that but what he did was he ended up going back to the conventional army for a time he went through sfas uh, became a Green Beret, went back to Ranger School. I don't know how he did that, but he did it all over again. First time through go. And now he's he's long tab, Ranger tab, you know. Um, so he took that loss, you know, and, and he went back um, and crushed it. You know, well, that's, you know, that's that's one of those things, too, where it's like it wasn't meant to be at the time. Like that changed something in his life forever. You know, so the fact that he didn't make it through the first time, okay, cool. He got to go do these other things. And it's not that he went on to go, it just, it wasn't meant to be at that time, you know? And, you know, I, one of the things I told my son was like, everybody learns this lesson. When you're in for an extended period of time, everybody is going to learn this lesson. And fortunately, you got to experience it very early on in your career. There are people that learn that lesson in the Ranger Regiment as an E-8 and get sent down the road, you know, and then what, you know, you, how are you going to compete with these E-8s and E-9s that have done all these other assignments and everything else that you've never done? Now you're like 
struggling to even compete for E9 because you didn't fulfill these roles that they, you know what I mean? It's like, so they're, they're, everybody's going to learn a lesson like that at some point. And I like, uh, I like what you said about, you know, it's what you do with it and where you go with it. That really is what matters. So there you go. I got 30 extra minutes. <laughs> you did. You, honestly, I could do this. You can I could cut out all that other bullshit. That didn't <laughs> buy this piece in. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. No, honestly, I, I could do, I, I could talk all day. This is awesome. Um, I, I would love to have you back on. Uh, definitely we'll look to, you know, find a time where it works for you and, and that we can fit in as well. I mean, this has been really just just an honor for for us. I was gonna say like, it's nice for us, cool. yeah. Even if I care about people watching, I I enjoy. It. <laughs> yeah, well, that's what this is. That's what this podcast really is for us. It's a, it's a creative outlet, and it's something we enjoy doing. Like I legitimately have fun with the podcast with the brand, and I'm kind of I'm really fortunate to be in a position now where I'm back on a path to you know, getting a career during, during the pandemic, you know, I was relying on this a lot to pay the bills really. Um, I didn't know what was going on, what we were doing. Um, but now we're in a position where you know, I'm handling the back end. So this just is, it gets to be an outlet where we get to kind of similar to what you do with the band, like, you know, a way to give back, you know? Um, so we get to give back in our own way. And that's, you know, it's healing for us. I would say in a lot of ways, this brand, um, helped me resolve a lot of things that I was, you know, I hadn't resolved. Like I, I, I got to go back and kind of feel like I made something that I did matter, something that was, you know, hard for me. Um, I got to make it matter again. I got to be, you know, provide some relevance again to, you know, people as a whole, but especially the military community. Um, you know, I got to make those past experiences matter and also introduce my new uh, you know, expertise and things. So, you know, I think that's what you're doing with your music as well. You know, giving back in your own way. And, and the fact that you guys donated the entirety of your, your profits to charity is speaks volumes about who you guys are. Yeah, absolutely. So if, if people want to support, you know, charitable organizations, they, they can do it best by purchasing you know, the music at iTunes or wherever, but if you listen to it, stream it, whatever, it's still contributing in some way, shape or form. So if you want to help us, you know, to some degree, be able to offset some of the costs of just stuff. If you get on and buy merchandise, that's the best way to kind of help us. I mean, it's not free, cheap or easy. I think this, this album, you know, is to the tune of about $30,000. So, okay. you know, that's my personal contribution to the, you know, to the thing. And, uh, you know, not that we're going to sell enough merchandise to pay that back or anything, but it can help offset costs. You know, food isn't free when we're rehearsing, you know, gas isn't free, hotel rooms, all that kind of stuff. So uh, people buy merch, that definitely helps. And we've got a bunch of new stuff coming. So, Okay. Yeah, I got to go check it out. So, guys, this is uh, this is one of the shirts. Um, I rep it all the time. I like I like this shirt. Um, and it's good, good quality too. So I'll I'll check out the other shirts. I got a whole wardrobe now full of my networking uh friends, all the brands and stuff. So uh I'll definitely be adding to that. Gonna have um, to get a new closet. 
Yeah. <laughs> so, so I will. Speaking of which, I figure you know Rangers like um, like Vans shoes. So I've yeah. I've got a collection here of uh, of all my customs, and uh, I figure people would love to see all the different. Uh, hold on, this is one of my favorite pairs. Oh, those are oh, those are nice. <laughs> yeah. Here's here's another one. I've got I don't know about twenty pairs of these that are just all different. And by the way, side note: those are good lifting shoes. Those van type shoes. Yeah, van flat type shoes. Dope. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Anyway. Yeah. Cool, man. I appreciate you guys having me. And uh, anytime, man. We just say the word. I'll jump on. Awesome. Yeah, yeah we'll this... probably absolutely take you up on that offer for sure. <clears throat> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, this has been a blast. Um, we will leave links to all your stuff yep, down, all below. down below. Yeah, the music, the merch, all that stuff. So you guys be sure to check it out. Um, leave your social media and stuff as well. Um, uh, thanks again for coming on. Um, and hey. you guys, sorry. No, I was just saying, man, thank, thanks for having me. Yeah, yeah. It, it, thank you as well. And, and thank you guys for tuning in. Um, so be sure to check out the links below all of Brad's stuff. And if you want, be sure to check out trainlikearanger.com where we have workout programs, nutrition programs, merchant apparel, and as always, much more on the agenda. Thank you guys so much for tuning in. And remember to train to your utmost potential like a ranger. See you guys.